the first step in building an outline is you have a purpose statement. His goal is to fulfill that purpose, and so he's going to break that up into sections or divisions. We'll call them major divisions. And he puts material in those divisions specifically so you will get the message that he wants you to get, that he, you will understand whatever it is he wants you to understand. All of those divisions relate back to the purpose statement. It's kind of like a sermon when you hear a sermon. Pastor gets up and says this morning, you're going to see three keys to the walk, to your sanctification. The purpose of the sermon is learning about sanctification, and he breaks it up in three major sections. We saw this last week when we looked at the book of Galatians. Uh, Dr. Clausen gave us this outline. Now you know where my graphic comes from. Notice the purpose statement. The purpose of Galatians is to defend the gospel of justification by faith alone. And the three major sections, the three major divisions, are all related back to the purpose statement. The first section, justification by faith alone, defended personally. Justification by faith alone defended theologically, and justification by faith alone defended practically. And if you'll remember last week, we went back and we looked at the first three chapters of Galatians to find out how we can see those divisions. Do you remember that? You determine the major divisions in the book by looking for where the author changes his focus. Kind of like when you're watching a movie, the camera pans to another person or to another scene. The author changes his focus in the book. What are some of the points of focus that he might change to? Well, it could be who he's speaking about. Galatians 1 and 2, he's speaking about himself. He's talking about his own personal life, and he's using his life to prove justification by faith. He can change in geography. If you go into the gospel accounts and you just follow the geography of everywhere Jesus goes, you'll learn a lot about the gospel account that you've missed. He can also change his logical focus. That is, he could just shift to another topic. And when he shifts to a new topic, you have another division. By doing this, by getting these major divisions of the book, you can understand the macro view of the book. You can get a a big picture of the book. You can see the forest. And you can determine where your passage, if you're studying Galatians 3, you can figure out where your passage fits within the entire scope of the book. But there's something we need to understand here. When we talk about immediate context, these major divisions have minor divisions inside of them called paragraphs. Paragraphs form the arguments within every major division. And it doesn't matter how many paragraphs you have, and it doesn't matter the size of the paragraph, every paragraph has one main idea that it's trying to get across. And that main idea of that paragraph will relate back to the main division, and the division will relate back to the purpose statement. Dr. Brad Clausen, regardless of the number of sentences they contain, a paragraph focuses on one basic idea. Moreover, a major major division can be comprised of just one paragraph or many. Regardless of the number of paragraphs in a section, they will relate with each other by virtue of the fact that they will contribute to the bigger idea contained in that section. So if you're studying a passage, your passage is going to show up within a paragraph. And oftentimes we come to a passage and we want to try to interpret the passage just like that. I've got my four verses that I want to study and that's all I'm going to look at. But that passage doesn't show up in the Bible that way, does it? 
with the exception of one passage in the Bible, there will be a paragraph in front of your passage. What's the one exception in the Bible to that? Genesis 1. You're not going to have anything before it. Every other passage in the Bible has something that comes before it. It has a paragraph or many paragraphs before it, and those immediate paragraphs are important. There's also something that comes after your passage, with the exception of one passage. Revelation 22, there's nothing that comes after it. Every other passage has a paragraph or paragraphs that follow it. What comes before your passage, if you want a technical name, is called the preceding context. What comes after your passage is the subsequent context. And they're both important to understanding your passage. Why? Because the paragraph that comes before forms the foundation and the basis for your text. The author has started a logical argument before you get to your text, and you need to understand what that argument is by the time you get to your text. And your text serves as a link to what comes after it. And it's related to what comes after it. And what comes after it is related to your text. These three together, what comes before your text and what comes after your text, these three together, when you combine them together, you know what you get? A major division. That major division is going to relate back to the purpose statement. Do you see how you zoom in and you can zoom out again? But you have to understand your passage in its immediate context, what comes right before it, what comes right after it. Because that's going to help you understand it. More than that, the material that comes before and the material that comes after your passage also provide hermeneutical boundaries. It tells you what your passage can and cannot mean. Let me give you an example of that. Grab your Bibles. Go over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. This is a well-known passage of the wheat and the tares. The parable of the wheat and tares. Now, if your Bible is formatted with paragraphs, you will notice that the parable, starting in verse 24, is its own paragraph. Here's the NASB. This is out of Logos. And there's our parable. Notice they have it broken up into a paragraph. The LSB has one verse per line. But notice, there's our paragraph. They clearly show it's a paragraph by separating. Other Bibles show it's a paragraph by just making the verse number bold. And that'll show the start of a new paragraph. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I just want to read the parable real quick. Matthew 13, starting verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain... Then the terrors became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if that's where we began our study of this passage, and we just looked at that text, it's a parable. How many of you have heard this described as this is talking about the church? That the field here is the church, 
Verse 24, when it says the field, that's the church. And the wheat and the tares, the wheat are believers in the church, and the tares are unbelievers in the church. And therefore, the church needs to be careful and guard itself from admitting unbelievers. And the church needs to watch out for unbelievers in the church, and everyone in the church should examine themselves to make sure that they are truly a believer. I mean, you've heard that before, and they use that passage. Okay? Now, let me ask you a question. The theology I just gave you of examine yourself, be careful not to admit unbelievers in the church, is that good theology? Of course. What's the problem with that theology here? That's not what Jesus is talking about. And if we take this parable in isolation and we don't look at the immediate context of what comes before and what, what comes after, we're going to get the wrong interpretation. How do we know what this parable means? We examine the immediate context and we find out, jump down to verse 36, Jesus explains the parable. Matthew 13, verse 36, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is what? The world, not the church. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Notice I don't have to guess what the parable means. I can examine the context and I can find out what it means because Jesus explains the parable for me. This parable is about the world. In the world, there are people who are sons of the kingdom. That is, they are believers. And when the kingdom comes, they will be ushered into the kingdom. And there are sons of the devil. They're part of another kingdom. And when Jesus ushers in the kingdom, they will be taken away off into judgment. But for now, they exist and they live side by side with citizens of the kingdom. Do you see how important immediate context is to examining your, and understanding your passage? Jesus here puts limitations on our interpretation. Uh, Walter Kaiser, without the benefit of knowing the connection between the paragraph under consideration and the section of the book in which it is found, the exegete will often be at sea in interpreting a passage. Once again, the primary work of identifying context is most important. If you don't examine the context, you're just gonna your interpretation is going to be all over the map. So we examine immediate context by looking at the minor arguments found in individual paragraphs. That kind of requires that we are able to identify a paragraph. And I know that sounds like we're going back to elementary school, but bear with me. You'll see why I'm going to talk about this. How do we distinguish between individual paragraphs? Because it's not always easy and it's not always obvious. First, chapter divisions and numbers, verse numbers, can be confusing. Anybody know when those were added into the Bible? Later. Yeah, in the 1500s. That's a good answer. Later. Much later. Those aren't inspired. And the more you study, the more you will find out that sometimes they put verse divisions like right in the middle of a sentence in the most awkward places. And sometimes chapter divisions happen where there is no division in the actual literature. So that can be confusing. The second reason is our English Bibles are often formatted in such a way that paragraphs are hidden unless you're looking for them. Now, I'm going to show you a picture. You, I know you can't read that from way back there. That's my Bible. That's this one right here. 2 Corinthians 11. How many paragraphs are in that? You don't have to be able to read it in order to know how many paragraphs there are. Can you see any paragraphs in that? None of them are marked, clearly. Unless you can see the verse numbers, which are supposed to be bold for the start of a new paragraph, it's really hard to tell where the paragraph begins and ends. Now, if I were to go to the same text, 2 Corinthians 11, 
and pull it up in, let's say, the Greek text. You don't even have to read Greek for this. There's the Greek text. Can you see some paragraphs there? Clearly marked, right? 11, 1 through 6 is a paragraph. There's verse 7. There's verse 12. There's verse 16. They're clearly marked. They're clearly laid out. But in my NASB, not so obvious. Not so easy to see, is it? And unless you're looking for it, and unless you know what to look for, you're not going to know where the paragraphs are, which means you're not going to know where his arguments begin and end, and when he transitions to a new argument. Now, in my NASB, it's supposed to show you, can you see the seven? Is that seven bold? Maybe? A little bit? Kind of hard to tell? What about verse 12? That one's a little bit easier to see. But you really have to look for it, don't you? Because the formatting here isn't always easy to note where the paragraph is. What's the point I'm making? The paragraphs distinguish the various arguments the author is making. And you're not going to be able to, you're not going to, be able to distinguish those arguments and understand them if you can't separate them out. And you're going to start mixing things that shouldn't be mixed, that the author never intended to have mixed. And you need to be able to identify these paragraphs without depending upon the formatting of your English Bible. Why? Because translators disagree on where these paragraphs begin and end. And so your one Bible will be formatted one way, another Bible will be formatted another way. You have to be able to go into your Bible and distinguish the various paragraphs so that you understand the text. Uh, Dr. Brad Clausen again. While some Bible editions do nothing to mark off paragraph divisions, leaving it all up to the interpreter to decide for himself, other editions assist the reader by formatting the text with indentations and spacing to show where the paragraphs begin and end. Yet these divisions are not inspired nor inerrant. There are occasions where even experienced translators disagree over the exact location of paragraph break. It is important that the interpreter be able to decide for himself with supporting proofs where he believes each basic idea ends and where the next one begins. And you determine where those end and begin by looking for the paragraphs and identifying individual paragraphs. Everyone seeing why this is important now? We're not going back to elementary school? This is important. Okay, so how do you distinguish between various paragraphs? What do you look for? If we're not going to look at the formatting of the text, what are we supposed to look for? Walter Kaiser provides uh, five criterion for distinguishing a paragraph. I'm going to give you these five, and then we're going to look at some examples as we go, and then at the end, we'll bring it all together. First one, pay attention to the theme. Walter Kaiser says, um, the principal feature of a paragraph is a unifying theme. This is often indicated by the repeated use of the same term or concepts. I want to show you this. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, what chapter is 1 Corinthians 13 about? It's the love chapter. That's the unifying theme of the chapter. But that's not to say that there's no paragraphs in 1 Corinthians 13, because if you study out the passage, what you will find is that there are paragraphs. The word love is used eight times throughout the chapter. Whenever you see a word repeated over and over and over again, pay attention. Paul marks the beginning of the section by transitioning in 13.1 to the topic of love. And he transitions away from the topic of the spiritual gifts. Kind of transitions away from it. Look at chapter 12, verse 31. But you 
earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Chapter 12, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. Verse 31, he says, desire the gifts, but I want to show you something more important. Notice chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice he was talking about the gifts like speaking in tongues in chapter 12. And in 13.1, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, there's his transition. He's connecting chapter 12 to chapter 13, and he transitions to the topic of love. In verses 1 through 3, he's going to show you the superiority of love. Let me show you. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He's not saying here that there is a language from heaven that you can somehow mystically get and you can speak in an angelic language that nobody knows. That's not what he's saying here. He's using hyperbole. If I could speak with the eloquence and the sophistication of a perfect being that has no sin nature, you ever heard the the saying, they have the voice of an angel the perfect tone, the perfect diction, the perfect vocabulary, if I could speak that way and yet did not have love, I might as well just go out and bang a drum. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, know all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Notice again, he's now talking about the spiritual gifts and he's relating them to love. Sure, desire the spiritual gifts. But understand, if you have the greatest manifestations of the gifts, and you can prophesy and speak in tongues, and you can give all this information, but you don't have love, you are nothing. Verse 3, same ideas expressed. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is superior to the finest speech. It's superior to the spiritual gifts. It's superior to all the sacrifices you can make. Do you see how verses 1 through 3 form a paragraph? They're all dealing with love, but they're all talking about how love is superior to something else. Do you see that? That's the theme of those three verses. Now look at verse 4. There's a change. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up. Is he still talking about the superiority of love? No. Correct. He's not talking about the superiority of love. Now he's talking about love itself. What does love do? How does love behave? How does it act? The theme is still love, but he's talking about a different aspect of it. This is a new paragraph. It's a minor argument. And we can follow that through the text. Look at verse 5. He continues that same idea, speaking of love. It does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These verses are all talking about the character and the qualities of love. What does love do? Verses 4 through 7 describe the behavior of love. Do you see the change in the theme? This forms another paragraph. We don't have to go through the rest of it, but you guys get the point. The theme changes. It's a new paragraph. Second criterion. Pay attention to rhetorical questions. Now, we just had an example of this recently in a sermon. 
Anybody remember where that's from? Where there's four questions that Paul asks? Someone said it. What shall we say then? This is what Paul does in Romans 6 and 7. He asks rhetorical questions, and oftentimes those questions are the start of a new paragraph. I'm not going to go through and rehash everything Michael taught on that. If you want to hear that, go back and listen to the sermon. But look for those rhetorical, those rhetorical questions because he'll often ask the question at the start of the paragraph and the remainder of the paragraph is the answer to the question. And so if you want to find the paragraphs, just look for the questions. Walter Kaiser, rhetorical questions will often introduce a new paragraph. Third criterion, the author speaks to specific individuals. Turn over to Colossians 3. Walter Kaiser says, evocative form of address may commence a new paragraph. Evocative is just a fancy word to say he's talking to somebody. Paul, in the book of Colossians, is speaking to the believers at Colossae. And if you follow through chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talking to the church at large and to all of the believers. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, you have been raised up with Christ. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to all the believers in Colossae. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Again, that's to everyone. Chapter 3, verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love. This is what he's been doing the entire book. He's been just talking to all of the church. But notice in verse 18, that changes. Verse 18, he's no longer speaking to the Colossians generally, but he's speaking directly to specific individuals. Verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands. Verse 19, husbands love your wives. Verse 20, children be obedient to your parents. 21, fathers do not exasperate your children. Verse 22, slaves in, the, in all things obey those who are your masters. Do you see how he's gone from talking about talking to the entire church and he's now transitioned down to talking about just specific individuals? And he's given direction to specific groups of people in the church of Colossae. So here's the question. Where does this paragraph end? It starts in verse 18. Where does the paragraph end? At the next chapter? In the next chapter? In the next chapter. What, what verse do you think? Two? 23 being a new one? All right. Well, let's do this. Where does he stop talking to individual believers? Where does he go back to just addressing the church as a whole? Uh-huh. Chapter 4, 1. In verse 2 of chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer. He goes back to talking to everyone. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters grant your slaves justice. There he's still talking to individual believers. And so this, this paragraph would go from chapter 3, verse 18, all the way through 4, 1. Do you see how the chapter division is in the wrong spot? It's one verse off. And if you were studying this passage, you wouldn't want to skip 4.1 simply because it's in a new chapter. You would want to study the whole passage out from 3.18 all the way through 4.1. Fourth criterion. Notice sudden changes in the text. This is a very broad category. Notice sudden changes in the text. Uh, Walter Kaiser Sudden changes in the text are one of the best ways to detect the beginning of a paragraph. For example, there may be an abrupt shift in the key actor or participant, the mood, tense, or voice of the verb, the location of an action or topic, the use of a striking introductory connective, be it a conjunction, preposition, or a relative pronoun, can also be an indicator. 
We saw this in Colossians. There's just a major shift, a major change in the text. And it doesn't have to be just who he's talking to. He changes his theme, he changes his tone or his topic. We're going to see a few of these when we get to the end of this class. We're going to see this in detail. Last criterion. Look for links. Not web links, but links in the text. Walter Kaiser, frequently what appears at the end of one paragraph is taken up and developed more fully in the next paragraph. And we saw this in chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 1, where he reaches back and grabs a discussion on spiritual gifts, and he relates that to the topic of love. And at the end today, we'll see more of this where there's links from one section to the next. And again, why is all that important? Why do you need to know how to identify paragraphs? Yes, yeah, you, you would want them to be able to finish their thought. And if you can't identify where the thought ends, then it's like just stopping. Yes, ma'am. That's a great question. Um, because those, those chapter divisions and nurse, verse numbers were put in by one guy. I don't remember his name. Um, and we've just maintained them ever since because that's if we change it now, then people are going to get upset that John 3.16 is no longer John 3.16. So that's a great question, but the, yes. Yeah, there you go. No one knows why he, why he did it the way he did. Um, just as, as Bible interpreters, you need to understand you're not always going to be able to trust those divisions. You just have to be able to see it for yourself. And the only way to do that is to know what a paragraph is and to be able to go back and look at the text. These paragraphs are the arguments that prove his main point. Maybe he didn't know Greek. I don't know. Um, and these paragraphs, by being able to distinguish these paragraphs, it allows you to put up boundaries to know where your text begins and ends and what information is relevant to your text. Once you understand the paragraphs, then you can look at the major divisions, and then you can see the whole book, and you can see the paragraph in context, both immediate and the broad context. You need both. You can't understand the minor paragraphs without understanding the major divisions, and you can't understand the major divisions until you get the minor paragraphs. You need both. Uh, Bernard Rom. We can understand a particular passage only if we know what the whole Scripture teaches. But we can only know what the whole Scripture teaches by knowing the meaning of its parts. And so all theological interpretation of Scripture is a rotation or spiraling from part to whole and whole to part. Now, he's talking about the whole book or the whole Bible. But the same idea is true in any book. If you want to understand the individual book, you need to understand not only its broad context, but you need to understand the individual paragraphs. And once you're able to do that, once you can distinguish the individual paragraphs and the broad divisions, you know what you can do? You can now make your own outline of a book. And you don't have to depend on a commentary to tell you the outline of the book. How many of you think how many of you have done an outline of a book before? A couple of people? Yeah, a couple, okay. Well, we're gonna do that. Not a whole book, but we're gonna do that. We're gonna make an outline. Um, go over to the book of Matthew. This past week I went and outlined Matthew 1 
through 9. And we're going to go through all nine chapters today. No, we're not. Um, we're just going to do the first section. And I was going to print it out and hand it to you, and then I forgot it this morning, and I didn't print it out. So that's okay. We'll put it on the screen. We're just going to outline a part of this, and I just want to show you the process for going through the Bible and making an outline and looking at the divisions of the book. Matthew chapter 1. Now, before we do this, um, this is, we're talking about the stages of interpretation. Analyzing context is stage 1, which means this outline is part of the first step of interpreting the text. Why is that important? It's important because this is step one, which means you're going to do your outline. You're not writing it in stone. This is not the law of the Medes and the Persians, where it cannot be altered later. You write this down, and then you adjust it as you go through and study the passage. This outline is not going to be perfect when you do it. It's not going to be perfect when I do it. And in fact, when I did the outline and I went back to put this class together, I was changing my outline. Because it's not going to be perfect. But this is a starting point to help you get your mind wrapped around the book. So let's start with the foundation. The foundation of the Gospel of Matthew. What's the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? Anybody know? I'm sorry? That's part of it? Jesus? Yes? Yes, ma'am. Jesus is the Messiah. There you go. Same idea. Yeah, Jesus is king. That's the basic purpose of the book. He's here to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the Messiah, who would usher in the new kingdom. That's his purpose. If you want to know how to figure out a purpose statement, go back two weeks. The audio is online. We go through that. So let's just start by identifying some chapters. Let's start in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1. What's the most prominent thing you see in chapter 1? The genealogy. Now, you could probably go through and break up the paragraphs in that genealogy. I don't think there's a lot of benefit to doing it, so I didn't do it, okay? It starts in verse 1. Here's the real question. Where does the genealogy end? Verse 16? What verse does it end on? Yeah. I would include verse 17 in the genealogy. Now, if you want to separate it out, you can. Here's why I would include it. If you have an NASB, notice verse 17 starts with the word so. The LSB starts with therefore. That opening word there indicates that verse 17 is logically connected to everything that comes before it. It's dependent upon the genealogy before it. And so I would put the genealogy as verses 1 through 17, and that's what I've done, and I've titled it The Genealogy of the King. Okay? Now let's look at verse 18. Is verse 18 part of that same paragraph? Anyone want to venture a yes or a no to that? No, it's not. How do you know that? The big clue there, verse 18 starts with the word now. That's a transitional word. It's as if Matthew is saying, look, here's the genealogy of the king. Now, now that I finished that, let me go on to something else. And what does he go on to? He goes on to the birth of the king. What follows from verse 18 on is the story of the conception and the birth of the king. And you can read through those verses until he finishes the story of the birth of Jesus. And that'll be the end of the paragraph. You can also do something else. Take your finger, run it down the left-hand margin, and look for another transitional word. Yeah, the big one's going to be in Matthew 2.1. 22. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. 
The big one's going to be in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. And so you can take both these methods. One, read through the passage, see where the theme changes. What you find out is the theme changes right there after verse 25. Or you can look for the, the summary words now in chapter 2, verse 1. So our paragraph here is going to run from 118 to 125. And I've just entitled that the conception and the birth of the king. And we title that the birth of the king, if you look at the end of verse 25, until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the birth is a very short part of it. Most of this is the story of the conception of Jesus, but the birth is still included. Notice my titles. When you do your outline, you can title these anything that you want, what helps you understand the book. Notice my titles incorporate the idea of king, because Matthew's purpose is to tell about the coming king and to prove Jesus is the king. And so they relate back to the purpose statement. It's not merely the conception and birth of Jesus. It's the birth, the conception and the birth of a king, the king. So we now have two paragraphs, and both of them refer to the coming of the king. Let's look at the third paragraph. That begins in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice it says, now after Jesus was born. Notice what follows comes after the birth of Jesus. And so it comes not only after in the sense of, on the page, words on the page, but it comes after the birth chronologically. Once Jesus is born, then these events happen. This verse, when it says, now after Jesus was born, notice the link back to the previous verse. Do you see that? Chapter 2, verse 1, it speaks of the birth of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 25, she gave birth to a son. There's the link. It links back. But the events he's going to describe here in chapter 2 are not the birth. They're things that happen after the birth. What happened after the birth of the king? Chapter 2, verse 1 again. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. This is the story of the Magi coming to see Jesus. And again, all you have to do is just read the passage and see where he stops talking about the Magi's visit to see Jesus. And you can also run your finger down the left-hand margin. Once you do that, run your finger down that left-hand margin and find out where that next big word is that transitions. And when you do that, verse 13 will jump out at you. Now when they had gone. And what you'll find is that you read through the passage, the story of the Magi coming to Jesus goes from verse 1 through 12, and verse 13 starts a new section. Everybody following me? Anybody confused? Yes. Could you If you wanted to, you could subdivide it like that, and you can make a min another minor subsection. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Just understand that that's still within that, that one main section of, well, let me show you. The Magi worship the king. And so you can indent and be a little bit more detailed in your outline if you wanted to. You can make your outline as detailed as you want, just as long as it's following the text. So, yes. Okay, so there we have three paragraphs so far. The genealogy of the king, the conception and birth of the king, the magi worship the king. Fourth paragraph begins in verse 13. Between 2.13 and 2.15, three verses. Notice the theme in those three verses. He uses the name Egypt three times. He uses it again down in verse 19. And that theme connects these verses. 
from 13 all the way through 19. Also notice at the beginning of verse 13, we have a transitional word, now. The next time we have a transitional word, we have that all the way down in chapter 3, verse 1. You see that? So 2.13, now when they had gone. The next time you see that is chapter 3, verse 1, now in these days. Why am I pointing all that out to you? Because that indicates 13 all the way through 23 is one section. They're all linked together. Back in verse 13, the angel tells Joseph to take the child and his mother to Egypt. Verse 15, he remains in Egypt until the death of Herod. And then you get verse 16, and you get this transition, then. Then tells us what happens next. It introduces what follows in time. So verse 16 is a minor break, like we were talking about a minute ago. This is a minor break, but it's still within the section. So let's go back to our outline. Verses 13 through 15, I've entitled, The King Flees to Egypt. Now look at our outline. The genealogy of the king, the conception and the birth of the king, the magi worship the king. And then all of a sudden we have the king flees to Egypt. Do you see a difference in the, do you see a change in our outline? Those first three all relate to the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah in, in the sense of his physical birth. The fourth bullet is describing what he did after his birth. And so at this point, I think we can rightly say that we have two separate sections here, or at least those first three are sectioned by themselves. So we can indent those first three and title them the arrival of King Jesus. That's the section. And in that section, we have those first three paragraphs, the genealogy of the king, the conception and birth of the king, and the magi worship the king. Everybody see how we did that? Let's look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. Who is this Herod? You know, there's several different Herods during this time period. Which Herod are we talking about? Because if this is a completely different Herod, we have a completely new section, don't we? Which Herod are we talking about? Well, I'm sorry? Yeah, this is the same Herod. This is the same Herod. How do we know that? Because look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, this is the same Herod that we saw back in the beginning part of chapter 2. The one that the Magi went to, and he said, hey, when you find the child, let me know. And the Magi said, uh, no thanks, and they left. They went and saw Jesus, and then they took another way home. So this is the same Herod. He's the one that's mentioned in verse chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 7 which means our little paragraph here in chapter 2, verse 16, relates back to the opening part of chapter 2. It relates back to the conception, I'm sorry, the Magi worship the king. Chapter 2, verse 16 and following, Matthew describes Herod being upset about being tricked by the Magi. And so he orders the death of all the babies under the age of two, all the males under two. And if you just read through that little passage, you will find that the story of Herod killing the babies goes until verse 18. So that paragraph is 16 through 18. I've entitled it, Herod Slaughters Children. And you can see the transition from this paragraph, verse 19. Notice it starts, but when Herod fled, now he's no longer talking about, oh, excuse me, but when Herod died, 
He's no longer talking about the order of Herod and the killing of the babies. Now he's talking about what, what happened after that. And so we have a different section. Herod dies. That links back to verse 15 where he says, until the death of Herod. Verses 20 through 23, Joseph is told to take Jesus back to Nazareth. And so that's going to form another paragraph. I've entitled that, The King Arrives in Nazareth. Remember our very first division? The arrival of King Jesus? We've seen that 2.13 through 23 are all linked. They're all discussing the same events. The fleeing of Jesus because of Herod. Herod killing the children while Jesus was in Egypt. Jesus returning to Israel and arising in Nazareth. All of those are related to each other. And especially at the end of that, where Jesus returns to Nazareth and he arrives, he doesn't return to Nazareth, what does he do? He arrives in Nazareth for the first time. And Matthew points that out and says he will be known as a Nazarene. This is his arrival in Nazareth. These three paragraphs form another section. I called it the flight of the king. The flight of the king. The king flees to Egypt. Because he flees, Herod slaughters the children. And then when Herod dies, the king arrives in Nazareth. Now, my outline here, we have a question we need to answer. Should it be that way? Or is that second section a part of the first one? Should it look like that? That is to say, is the flight of the king a part of his arrival? Or is it separate from his arrival? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is the correct way. This would make it a completely different section, completely separate from his arrival, and here it's part of his arrival. And I have three reasons for that. First of all, Herod is mentioned throughout the section, from 2.13 all the way through 23, which connects it back to the Magi worship the king. Secondly, the Magi are mentioned in verse 16. That also connects it back to the Magi worship the king. And then the third reason I would put it like this is because the theme of arrival, not only in his conception, his birth, but also in the arrival in Nazareth, fits with the idea of the arrival of the king. Yes, sir? Um, yeah, very good. Because when he first arrives, he's born in Bethlehem. Matthew shows that. And now he's showing he's also going to be called a Nazarene. So he fulfills both those prophecies. So I, I agree, this should be under the arrival of King Jesus. Now, we don't have time to keep going through the rest of the book because there's 28 chapters and we've got less than five minutes. But I, I do want to walk you real quick through chapter 3 so we can finish out this section. Chapter 3, 1 is a clearly a new paragraph. The reason it's a new paragraph is because that opening word now, it also changes focus. It goes from focusing on the arrival of Jesus to this guy named John the Baptist and the preaching of John the Baptist. And it's not that Jesus disappears from the story, it's just that, you know, before Jesus was here, and now John the Baptist is going to kind of take the forefront, and John the Baptist is going to be front and center. He's the forerunner of the king. And for the sake of space, I'm going to uh, collapse that last bullet. There we go. Now we have more room. And I would put all of chapter 3 under the arrival of the king. Why? Because the first 12 verses of chapter 3 describe John the Baptist preaching and telling people about the king arriving. 
Chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And so it's within that same theme. And it's Jesus' first introduction to anyone in the world. So I've entitled 3, 1 through 3, 17, the forerunner of the king. And that has two paragraphs in it. The preaching of the forerunner and the forerunner baptizes the king. Everybody follow the logic? Okay. And all of this is still under the arrival of King Jesus. In my mind, this is still under the arrival because Jesus has not begun his public ministry. He's still a nobody on the world stage. Nobody's really aware of him and who he is. His arrival goes all the way until the start of his ministry. And that doesn't start until later in chapter 4. The final section of this, this, the final part of the section is the temptation of Jesus starting in chapter 4, verse 1. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he changes again his focus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And now John the Baptist disappears again, and Jesus comes back to the forefront. So we have a change in theme, a change in focus. We have a new paragraph and again, his ministry still has not started. And he still has not completely arrived on the world stage. And if you read through the temptation narrative, what you will find is that narrative goes all the way through to the end of verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 12 begins with now. And again, the topic changes. Chapter 4, verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, notice he ties it back. He withdrew into Galilee and then it begins his ministry. Chapter 4, verse 17, from the time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John disappears from the scene and Jesus steps on onto the world stage. There's the arrival of the king. And so I would put the temptation of the king as the very last part of this section, of this major division. Any questions, comments? That's right, that's right. And those scrupulous records are now completely gone. And so, if he's not the Messiah, there's no way to prove anyone else is the king, right? Okay, so I, we went through all of this. We went through all of that because I, I want you to understand that, one, understanding immediate context is vital. You've got to understand the immediate context. And two, doing an outline is hard work. It does take some effort, but it is something you can do you don't have to be dependent upon a commentary or an introduction to give you the outline of the text. You can work your way through the passage and figure out the outline. Okay? Any questions before I close? Yes, sir. Yes. Correct. No. The uh, Masoretic Hebrew had paragraph markings, but the Greek did not. And so even there in the Greek text, you would, you would have to work through your way through the text to figure out where the, the divisions happen and occur. Great question. Any other questions? No? Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much uh, for our time this morning, this ability we have to come together to study the Word. We do ask that you would help us to be uh, diligent workers who do not need to be ashamed because we accurately handle the Word and that uh, you would help us to take what we've learned this morning and apply it in our own studies, that we would be uh, more faithful 
and more accurate in our interpretation of your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.